Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted January 6, 2017, we talk with Istanbul-based correspondent Lauren Bond, co-founder of the Foreign Policy Interrupted initiative to amplify women's voices on international affairs. She's one of two female guest editors of the new WPJ Winter Issue. We'll also point out top features in that new issue, cover line interrupted, with a unique perspective provided entirely by female editors, experts, and journalists. But first, some top news of the week. President-elect Trump caused more consternation abroad with tweets triggered by North Korea's warning that it might soon test an intercontinental missile. Trump mistook that to mean an actual nuclear weapon capable of reaching parts of the U.S. and wrote, quote, it won't happen, exclamation point but with no clue as to who or what would stop it. He also tweeted that China won't help with North Korea. Nice, with another exclamation point. Trump tweets did better at home, hours after one of them threatened tariffs on GM cars made in Mexico. Ford Motor publicly scrapped plans for an assembly plant there he criticized earlier. And the president-to-be got credit for tweets that supported overwhelming bipartisan and grassroots outrage over a secret vote by GOP House members to shackle the independent Office of Congressional Ethics. It was quickly reversed. Before Senate testimony that confirmed Russian hacking to tip last year's election, and before his own briefing on it, Trump again disparaged U.S. intelligence, which, it was reported, he already plans to overhaul. On Obamacare, he warned Republicans to act cautiously so Democrats don't escape blame for its problems. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. 81 days ago, I stood in front of 10 Downing Street for the first time as Prime Minister, and I made a promise to this country. Ich bin wie Millionen von Menschen in Deutschland entsetzt, erschüttert und tief traurig über das, was gestern Abend am Berliner Breitscheidplatz geschehen ist. Zwölf Menschen, die gestern noch unter uns waren, die sich auf Weihnachten freuten, Pläne für die Feiertage hatten, sie sind nicht mehr unter uns. Regarding the short-term fluctuations affecting our financial market, I have already asked the cabinet to take necessary action, including strengthening our economic ties with neighboring countries and across the region. I also hope that we can, through negotiations, strengthen our bilateral economic and trade cooperation with the U.S. Three of the women leading their lands through times of tension and turmoil last year. We heard Prime Minister Theresa May's first follow-through on a pledge to bring Britain out of the EU. Then German Chancellor Angela Merkel, shocked and shaken by the pre-Christmas terror attack in Berlin. Finally, Taiwan's first female president, Tsai Ing-wen, addressing the fears of island business leaders about the election of Donald Trump. That was before her prearranged phone call with Trump that shook up both U.S. and Taiwan relations with Beijing. But even as women attain the highest level of leadership in a growing number of nations, especially where other women can vote, there is a remarkable deficit of female voices among those who report and comment on the increasingly complex and diverse world of international affairs. 
This leads many women to feel they must interrupt a male-dominated conversation. That, in turn, has led to the creation of the nonprofit called Foreign Policy Interrupted to expand, assist, and amplify female voices in the field. And to that end, the group's founders, World Policy Institute fellow Elmira Beyrasli and Istanbul-based correspondent Lauren Bonn, have edited the new winter issue of World Policy Journal, cover line interrupted, with an all-female crew of experts, commentators, and correspondents. Their introductory editor's note is headlined, Get In Formation, a call to bring more mainstream news media into the campaign for greater diversity of views along race, region, and gender lines. And I discussed it with Ms. Bond recently for this podcast. Lauren Bond, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thanks so much for having me, David. Your editor's note starts with a visit by an exasperated female foreign policy expert. Tell us about that. You know, Almira and myself have such an amazing... Um, We have such amazing access to brilliant women all across the world who are doing truly, truly wonderful things, whether they be development practitioners in sub-Saharan Africa or security experts in China, Um, women who've really done so much, um, are at the top of their game, have accrued so many academic honors, what have you, Um, but Frequently, and in this one instance, which is particularly uh, symbolic of what we're trying to get at with FPI, is that so many women come to us feeling so insecure. They feel really frustrated. So this one woman in particular, who was actually one of our fellows, um, came to us really, really frustrated saying, you know, I feel as though that my, my boss who's a man, uh, isn't really hearing me out in meetings. Uh, often he'll attribute ideas that I've proposed to my male colleagues. He'll forget that I proposed them. Uh, when I pitch editors of top publications, whether they be magazines or newspapers for uh, the op-ed pages, I feel as though I'm not getting a response. I feel as though I'm not being taken seriously. Um, I feel invisible. So this one fellow specifically was really upset after about a week of uh, several sort of incidents like this. Uh, And she really started doubting herself. She really started saying, is is it me? Am I just not as, as smart as I thought I was? Do I need to be working on X, Y, and Z? You know, what, 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 what's going on? Um, And to us, that was just so sad, really. And it was so um, indicative of, I think, the psyche of so many women who feel as though uh, they aren't simply enough, that they're not smart enough, that they're not, they don't have um, enough uh, experience, they don't have enough, um, you know, expertise in something when they do. You cite surveys that underscore the deficit of female voices in discussion of foreign affairs on TV shows, academic panels, front pages, op-ed right. pages. Uh, say more about that. What are the, what do those surveys show? Look, the fact that women are underrepresented in the conversation and that men, specifically white men, dominate the conversation and ultimately narrate our world. This, this isn't anecdotal, David. I mean, this is founded in clear studies. So in the U.S., for instance, women author only about a quarter of op-eds published. And actually, World Policy Journal, the wonderful interns there, we'll give them a shout out at World Policy Journal, tracked 
um, over over the summer, the front page of the New York Times and found that men were quoted nearly three times more often than women. And then separately for the past two years or so, um, FPI, we've, we've joined forces with Media Matters for America in D.C. and we con- conducted studies on foreign policy analysis um, on cable news shows. And we found results that were literally out of the 1950s. I mean, women make up only about a fifth of foreign policy guests on major American news programs. That was in 2014 and 2015. Um, So we're not just pointing to sad conversations we have among brilliant women in the field who say we feel undervalued. Uh, These numbers would seem to reflect that, quite frankly, these women should feel undervalued because they are. And you note other studies showing it isn't a supply-side problem. It isn't a lack of position papers and essays and contributions that women are putting out there. Sure. I mean, you look at the top universities. You have women graduating at the top of the class of Ivy League schools in graduate programs in foreign policy-related fields every year, every every semester. Um, And it's also interesting to note when it comes to the supply side, I mean, I first came about, you know, on a personal level, I first started becoming familiar with with this disparity um, probably about six years ago when I moved to Egypt to cover the Arab Spring and um, the falling revolutions, devolutions, whatever you want to call them. Um, And I would, you know, just look around and note, wow, the female press corps, or the press corps actually, um, of people reporting on the Middle East is predominantly female. Um, You have, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, so many women reporters reporting, you know, the news of the day, you know, making uh, A1 daily. But when it comes, David, to the side of the content production side of, of expertise, and analysis and op-eds away from reportage, you see that actually then the majority of people who are called upon as experts are men. So we kind of have this leaky sort of rusty pipeline. So you have all of these women who are very well, you know, experts reporting on the Middle East, using the Middle East as an example. Um, But when it comes then time for Charlie Rose's roundtable or Fareed Zakaria to, you know, round up people to talk about uh, the offensive in Mosul, you have a bunch of men and usually a bunch of white men. But also of an increasingly complicated, diverse and divided world that would benefit from insight beyond totally. uh, just the male of half course. of its population. And just even just the, the Western male half. I mean, we can talk about how we're trying to interrupt uh, foreign policy beyond uh, the gender divide or fault line, if you will. Um, but, but yeah, look, I mean, when you, when you incubate more diverse um, opinions, more diverse um, uh, thought leadership, you're incubating and creating the possibility for uh, more solutions to some of these foreign policy challenges. And I mean, women specifically, you know, women have a variety of different experiences than men do and vice versa. And, um, you know, academics 
uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa are going to have, you know, different experiences than those uh, at Princeton, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and with those experiences carries with it such great DNA and great potential uh, for really, really uh, different and innovative and dynamic solutions to to be born and and to to be fostered. Uh, so you know when you think about who's narrating our world, it's actually pretty dangerous if you only have a sort of small portion of the Venn diagram uh, dictating uh, the the discussion. You say women experts typically face two main barriers to visibility. The first being institutional. Say a little more about right. that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, look, there's deeply entrenched societal sexism and bias. It can be unconscious or otherwise um, in our society. And that bias, that sexism, it deems male voices as the authority. Uh, so that in turn, women's voices aren't deemed authoritative. I mean, they're deemed second-guessed. They're, or they're second-guessed. They're untrustworthy. Um, and... We're currently living in this 140 character driven news cycle in which producers and editors, and that's part of sort of the institution and the, you know, the fourth estate, the, the, the media thought leaders, if you will, uh, the people who are producing our news, they don't necessarily have time to identify to cultivate new voices. Uh, so, I mean, when breaking news happens, uh, let's take the other day, for example. So there's a terrorist attack in Berlin, and they're, you know, sitting at their desk in New York. They have, you know, they, they have to get an op-ed out. They have to feed the beast. They have to book so-and-so, or they have to book an expert for their roundtable that night for their television hit, you know, sometimes they don't have time to sit around saying, hmm, I wonder who, uh, you know, an interesting female expert is on, uh, you know, terrorism and on, you know, specifically Tunisian um, uh, militants. Uh, so they, they, they fall back on who they know. So they might know that, you know, uh, this is usually the case, um, a male expert in D.C. who is particularly, you know, camera friendly and who's always ready to go on camera um, is likely going to fill that spot for them. So they call upon they call on him instead of maybe cultivating new voices because they quite simply they don't have time. And I'm a journalist, so I don't hold the media completely uh, to fault when it comes for the sort of lack of imagination or diversity in in our content production. Um, but that's where FBI comes in. We say, look, you no longer, editors, producers, have the excuse when you're, you know, putting together even a conference panel, when you're putting together a magazine, when you're putting together, uh, you know, Anderson Cooper's, uh, you know, television program that night. You don't have the excuse to say, oh, well, we didn't have anybody, any women on the show, on our pages talking about China because we just didn't know who to call upon. We didn't know that there were uh, female experts on this particular area. And FBI kind of comes in and says, well, that's, I don't know if I can, I'm not going to curse on your podcast just in case my mom is listening. But, but I mean, that's bullshit to really sort of back that up. I mean, we quite literally produce expert lists on a variety of subjects. So we have a list of foreign policy experts, women foreign policy experts on China, on terrorism, on Syria, on Russia. We have one even on Latin America and specifically Brazil. Um, so 
really we're trying to create this data, database to make uh, the power player's um, job a little bit more easy because, again, we're not saying it's all your fault. We're saying, look, we know the media environment is really hard. We know you have to feed the beast. We know you have Twitter, you know, Snapchat, whatever chat to, to, to now, you know, deal with and to produce content for. So we're going to hold your hand a little bit. And we're going to say, you know, here are these women. Um, these are the experts. They're, you know, vetted or, you know, at least by us, we, we know who they are. We've talked to them. They, they're experts in their field. Here you go. Second, more insidious barrier uh, is internal, you're right. Uh, talk about the lack exactly. of confidence and the way your project is dealing with countering that, not only with the institutions, but helping women themselves, the kind totally. of support that you can provide them individually. You know, I, I just said we, we essentially hold the media's hand a little bit. We also hold our female fellows and other women that we help and mentor, we hold their hand a little bit too. So we're the middleman um, because confidence matters just as much as competence and studies show that women again studies based in you know hard clear data women hold themselves to a higher threshold of certainty before they offer an opinion um and men overestimate their abilities and performance but women underestimate both studies and studies come out showing that women won't apply for jobs that they think they're underqualified for. Uh, men will apply for jobs that, you know, they are underqualified for, but think they're overqualified for. So really with FPI, we work on the institutional, the external end, as we call it. So we work with the media. We link our fellows at the end of our media training and leadership training program. We link them with an editorial mentor at publications um, to get at, again, this, this institutional barrier. But we do a lot of confidence building exercises. We do a lot of leadership training. Um, you know, this internal problem, this, this, this confidence gap, you know, it's not, it's not biological. It's not, you know, uh, at least we don't feel it's in our DNA. You know, this wonderful feminist writer, Jessica Valenti, says if women aren't feeling as though they're enough, if women aren't feeling as though they're undervalued, they're just not, they're just not paying attention enough because they are undervalued. Again, look at the statistics. Um, look at, you know, Guardian, uh, I believe it was last year and, See if I can find my notes. Uh, yeah, uh, last year they conducted a, a study um, on how many negative comments were posted on articles, specifically opinion pieces um, by men and by women, and so many more insults were lobbied or were lobbed at uh, pieces that had a female author. And we're talking really, really vile comments. And it, it comes as no surprise that the aforementioned writer I just mentioned, Jessica Valenti, received the most in Guardian's history of negative comments. And she writes on, you know, women's issues and, uh, and gender equity. Um, so really, this confidence gap is born from that reality of, of if you are a woman and if you step out into the public sphere, you're going to be the recipient of so much more vitriol uh, than you would be if you're a man. What would you point to as some of the signs of your success so far? I think your organization has been going for, I think it's two years now. What are, what are yeah. some of the hallmarks of your success? 
we just finished our third fellowship cycle, and we can talk just briefly about our fellowship program. So again, to get at what Elmira and I feel is uh, this gender disparity and internal barriers, external barriers, and how women need to lean in and how they need to lean out and do all these things. Uh, the FPI program is designed to give women leadership training, um, uh, to give them really meaningful networking and mentoring uh, within the field. And then we link them with an editorial mentor at a major publication. We, you know, uh, World Policy Journal is, of course, involved. We have Yafa and Christopher. Shout out to them mentoring two of our fellows, actually, this cycle. Uh, we have fellows at The Atlantic, at Reuters, at Foreign Policy, at Foreign Affairs, um, who had signed on and said, yes, we realize this is a problem. We will mentor one of your fellows. Not only that, but we will work with her on producing a piece for our pages. So we have deliverable, deliverables, and we, we point to the success of our fellows after they graduate from our program and as they go through it, their work as signs of, of success. So you know, we have Kamisa Kamara, who is absolutely fantastic on sub-Saharan Africa and democracy and governance in the Sahel. She's been on CNN numerous times the past month or so talking about elections in Gambia. Um, so their media placements and their, um, their contributions, whether in print or on TV, to these foreign policy conversations are our success. To really solve the problem, though, you say men must not only be allies but accomplices. Talk about that and the yeah. example set by the CEO of uh, Foreign Policy magazine. Yeah. So David Rothkopf, who is on our founding board of directors, um, took a pledge about a year ago saying that he would refuse to be on any panel at any conference uh, that didn't have a woman. On the panel, I mean, there have been a lot of studies done similarly, you know, as those that are tracking gender representation in the media. There's been a lot of studies done um, on conferences, specifically on DC, and how women just are not on panels. They're not at conferences on the stage uh, talking about foreign policy issues, talking about some of these really uh, crucial challenges. So David said, no, if, if your panel does not include a woman, I'm not going to be on it. Uh, and we would love to see more men in his position as, you know, a leader of a major publication as an editor of a major publication taking a similar pledge, um, you know, saying, no, we're not going to have a magazine or we're not going to have, um, you know, a series of op-eds, you know, published in a week that don't include a woman. So it's not enough for, it's not enough for men and we're not pointing to men because they're the other, I mean, we're very much, we are, we, our success depends on the involvement of men. I mean, we, we need to all come to the table and get at this issue uh, together. Um, but we are pointing to men because men do dominate the leadership boards and the editorial boards of publications and television and media companies. So we need men to not only say, yes, you're right, there is a gender disparity. Yes, you're right, there is a confidence gap, blah, blah, blah. We need them to say, yes, 
and we'll do something about it. How do you see the winter issue of World Policy Journal that you co-edited fitting into your larger goal? What kind of reporting and analysis by what experts on what uh -huh. relevant issues? It's, it's, so, it's just so cool. I love it. Um, I think what's also particularly cool about this issue is that oftentimes you'll hear, oh, this is an issue penned entirely by women. You often think then that all of the pieces are going to be about women uh, or going to be about gender. Um, and that's very much a stereotype we're always trying to um, buck and dismantle by saying, no, just because you're a, you know, a female foreign policy expert in, in you know, the Congo doesn't mean then your expertise is going to be about women in the Congo or gender equality in the Congo. You can, you know, be uh, a nuclear security expert. You can be a, a what have you. So what's great about this issue is while we do have really strong pieces, one by uh, one of our uh, alums of our fellowship program, Nanjala uh, Nyabla, she's in Kenya. She wrote a fantastic piece on gender representation um, in African uh, parliaments. Uh, we have a great piece on the future of China by Mara Cunningham, um, on femicide in Mexico by Alice Driver, who's a writer and a photographer as well. But I mean, we have awesome pieces that don't have anything to do with gender. We have um, a brilliant piece by Alina Poliakava on, you know, the great European unraveling. Um, we have a piece by Natalie Sambi that goes really, really deep um, into um, issues in Southeast uh, Asian pol uh, politics and security. I mean, we have a full range of, of really, really remarkable women who are experts in various fields, not just gender. Even our cover is a statement. We were so excited to get her. Molly Crabapple is probably one of the most preeminent artists, uh, millennial artists or artists of uh, the millennial generation, if you want to call it that. I mean, she's illustrated fantastic work everything from um, uh, Guantanamo and uh, the U.S.'s really flawed foreign policy in the United Arab Emirates um, to Syria. She actually illustrated our piece um, or our, the cover of our world policy interrupted issue, which is a woman um, of color who is reporting in a war-torn area. It's happened too late for your deadline, uh, but we would be remiss not to ask a foreign policy expert like yourself in Istanbul uh, about the assassination of Russia's ambassador by an off-duty policeman in Ankara before Christmas. How do you see it affecting Turkey's relations with Moscow and the fight against ISIS? Almira Berashli, uh, my partner in crime, uh, she had some great analysis on this that I completely agree with. Um, she basically said Russian Turkish relations, they didn't come to a head the other day. Um, and they're not likely to unravel anytime soon. I think, you know, a lot of people initially said, oh my God, it's going to be a war, Turkey versus Russia. Um, but in fact, we believe the shooting is likely to drive Moscow and Ankara closer together. And probably in answer to the, the latter portion of your question, probably at the expense of the United States and NATO. Um, so, I mean, U.S. and Turkey relations uh, hadn't been as good as, as they used to be. Um, that's because of two things. You have Syria, um, Ankara, and Washington have disagreed over the fate of Assad. 
Um, and more recently, and probably more vitally, the, the role of, of Syrian Kurds in that fight against Assad. Um, and, you know, enemies to the Islamic State, um, and Kurds are, Kurds are enemies to the Islamic State, and Washington supports Kurdish fighters. Um, Erdogan simply doesn't. <laughs> um, and this has really sort of exacerbated relations between the two countries. Um, and also you have the failed coup attempts this past July in Turkey. Um, and the U.S. and Turkey have really sparred over the desire for the Muslim preacher Fethullah Gulen to be extradited back to Turkey. Um, he's in self-imposed exile in Pennsylvania. And Erdogan blames Gulen uh, for plotting the July coup attempt and wants him to stand trial in Turkey. The U.S. is saying, no, we're not going to extradite him. So that is, again, a huge sort of wrinkle in that relationship. Um, and all the while, Putin is sort of happy about that. Um, you know, he's, of course, eager to see the breakup of the NATO alliance and a stronger Russia. And that all plays in his hands in his hands, rather, as does the current presidential election. And we've seen increasing um, evidence of Russian involvement in a whole array of uh, domestic issues in the U.S. So it's, it's a brave new world, David, and let's hope that world is narrated more by women. Lauren Baum, thank you. Thank you so much. Lauren Bonn is Istanbul-based Middle East correspondent for the Ground Truth Project, a new nonprofit to train and mentor the next generation of in-depth reporters worldwide. Formerly a columnist for Foreign Policy magazine, she's also co-founder of Foreign Policy Interrupted, the startup incubator and fellowship program for getting more women experts bylined and miked. With World Policy fellow Elmira Bayrasli, Bon edited the new winter edition of World Policy Journal, Coverline Interrupted, with all female writers and reporters, and she co-authored the opening editor's note, Get Information. After we talked, improved Ankara-Moscow relations permitted their collaboration on a Syrian ceasefire and peace talk plans that may or may not hold up. But Turkey's internal tensions rose following the New Year's Eve terror attack on a trendy Istanbul nightclub that left at least 39 dead, including 25 foreigners. ISIS claimed responsibility, but some critics of President Erdogan blamed failure to block or capture the attacker, at least in part on previous sacking of experienced police and security personnel he suspected of disloyalty. Featured in the new WPJ Winter Issue, Interrupted, written and edited entirely by female foreign affairs experts, you'll find articles on the fight for gender parity in Kenya and Somalia, on working with religious leaders to fight terrorism, and on the bias and bad manners that algorithms behind artificial intelligence can pick up from the real world. And listen next week when our podcast will talk about Vladimir Putin with Olga Oliker, Russia and Eurasia Program Director at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Her piece in the winter issue is headlined, Russian Brinksmanship, Don't Confuse Unpredictability with Strength. Maybe a tip to the new American president as well. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>